Welcome to another inspirational My Church podcast. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Caleb Davidson. To find out more about My Church, visit mychurchcanada.com. You know, when I look across the life of David, his whole start began with uh, his own family members, those, the people that you thought should appreciate you the most, the place where you think you should go to get the greatest support. And ultimately, what you noticed in David's life is that no one seemed to recognize the king within the kid. There was a kid who was not like the others. Here was a guy who, I mean, he was rugged, he was handsome, but he was a runt of the family. He wasn't even listed among those where greatness ought to be even considered. As a matter of fact, when the prophet shows up to his hometown, it says that David wasn't even invited to his own coronation party, his inauguration, more or less, where he'd be, I guess it's not a coronation as much as it's an anointing service. And, uh, you know, the truth is, is that I think that many of us, whether we recognize it or not, could relate to the sentiments of David, where he didn't feel appreciated, he didn't feel seen, he felt overlooked, where he, maybe even through his own self, he began to believe some of that. I'm not sure, but the scripture definitely doesn't give us any language toward that. I'm just speaking more from a human experience on this one. But regardless of the fact is that you see David throughout the scriptures, and he rises up, and it seems almost as if this rejection didn't phase him, like... He didn't need people to tell him who he was. And I don't know about you, but for me, that is something that is, you know, noteworthy. Um, because a question I would just start this whole talk off and, and just kind of pose a question to you. Could I ask it like this? Do you know who you really are? Or do you need other people to tell you who you are? And um, for me, I think I've spent... Men, years of my life going, yeah, I know who I am because such and such say I'm this. And these people clap for me when I do this, and so I'm this. And, and these people say I'm this, so I'm this. And, and I don't know about you, but when you put your worth, when you put your identity in the, in the mouths, in the hands of others, you're going to find yourself in a snare. It's a snare the Bible calls uh, the approval of men. You know, when you need the approval of men, it becomes a snare. And especially when it's weighted against the approval of God. And I don't know about you, but I think that anybody who's used powerfully by God has to come to a point, a fork in the road, where they deal with this issue under the hood of their lives. It's not really something, is it, that we can really uh, acknowledge. It's not really something that, that may, may manifest itself outwardly as much as it's a war that's dealt with inwardly. It's something that we really know of ourselves, whether we're secure or we're insecure, whether we're going somewhere and we're fishing for a compliment or we're fishing for approval, we're fishing so that we can draw something from it. I think that what is so interesting about David is he goes to this, I mean, it's almost, you'd almost call it borderline cruel. I mean, the prophet of the nation, I don't know if you guys understand, but this guy represented authority of God in that time and day and age. This is not just another, when we're on our trip, just to give you an example of what I mean. At the Temple Mount, where uh, it's built on Mount Moriah, Mor Mor I always call it Moriah, I guess they call it Moriah, so. In this place is where Isaac offered up his son, right? And that's where God says, hey, no, no, I have a, a ram caught in the thicket, use that instead. In other words, God always provides the sacrifice. <clears throat> it's not you who needs to perform the sacrifice here today, that God has already provided that sacrifice on your behalf. It's a ram caught in the thicket. It's, his name is Christ, right? And um, anyway, so they ended up building the Temple Mount on this very mountain. They, they quarried out part of it, and they built these stones that you could see me hyperventilating about on Instagram if you watched it, because these stones are like, some of them, I kid you not, are 570 tons, stacked on top of one another, like 40 meters up off the ground. And I'm like, okay, wait. I'm looking at this through a modern lens going, how did you know, primitive you know, people back then, I love that, right? Primitive, that's what I would have said until I went and saw with my eyes how they built this junk. And so we decided to take one of our cell phones and put it on one of the stones, and it was completely level 2,000 years later. When that region comes under earthquakes and all kinds of different things, boom, level, like I'm talking not one degree off. And so we said, no, this can't be, it's just this one stone, so we go to others. And they are perfectly square, perfectly chiseled out, 570 tons, y'all. Like one stone is like the size of a Mack truck, like combined. They're like three or four meters deep. And it's just something that you've never seen before. It's wild. Anyways, why was I saying that? That was just like a, a thought that came to my head. But um, 
Oh, God, help me. I forgot why I went there. This is a little bit of a rabbit trail. But nevertheless, uh, you know, what you see is in this Mount Moriah, this is where they built the temple, this is where they went, and, and ultimately this is where Christ would be sacrificed, the sacrifice for us later on, and uh, just outside the city gates of this place. But, you know, when I look at this whole paradigm, you look at Christ on the Temple Mount, what, is he, what does he represent? He represents rejection. He represents somebody who ultimately lived his life not being recognized by the people around him. Look at David. Who is he? Someone who lived his life not recognized by the people around him. His brothers, his own brothers, like, who do you think you are? They thought he was arrogant. They thought he was cocky. They thought he was somebody who was toting his own, being discriminate. And what happens is ultimately he's just living, though, true to what he believes and who he believes God said he is. What does his name mean? His name means the beloved of God. And for you and I here today, we happen to be the beloved of God. David might not be your, your actual name, but we do know that the Bible declares us on account of what Christ has done, the beloved of God. And so what is the beloved but to be loved? Your job in life is not to offer a sacrifice. Your job is to simply be loved and live in the fruit and be a beneficiary of the sacrifice of the one who was caught in the thicket, that Christ, who is more or less, you know, crucified on our behalf. And so my, my point in saying all of this is, is, as I look across this whole story, you know, it was really interesting to me. I never really put this together, but Christ was ultimately, thanks, Nick, very discreet, very discreet. Um, uh, but um, I'm going to stick with the sparkling anyways. It's uh, pastor juice is what I call this. But... Um, you know, Christ was like David, somebody who grew up. And, and I, I look at David, and he has no smell of bitterness on him. It doesn't seem like he does. And, and the whole question remains is, do you know who you really are, or do you need to have everybody else tell you who you are? That, for me, has been a struggle my whole life. I don't know about you, but it's, you can go through life just simply going, hey, so I'm this because they say I'm this. But what happens when, you know, you go to the crowd for your approval and not the Christ, and the crowd then begins to reject you. Now what? You see it in celebrity. I mean, I've been talking to you about this a little bit, and I've been watching people. And, and it's interesting because when you're in our line of work as a pastor, you can, you can fall into the same trap where you just give the people what they want. Right? You just give the people what they want. I don't know if you've ever experienced that, but if you get in a certain profession, a certain trade, you do something where there's lots of people who are kind of, you give the people what they want, you can almost feel like a glorified politician. And... But you got to ask yourself, am I going to play to the crowd or am I going to play to Christ? Who, who am I going to be obedient to? Yeah. And there comes a point where you hit this fork in the road where you go, okay, i got to be who I am. But if, you don't, if you've let who you are be shaped in the hands of others, in the words of others, I don't know about you, but they're going to say something really similar, I think, sentiments that they said about Jesus. What did they say about Jesus? Well, who do men say that? Well, some say this, some say that, right? And they didn't get the revelation. Only one of them did. And then they go back to his hometown. Remember when Jesus goes back to his hometown? Now this is on the Sea of Galilee. Now uh, he, was, he left the Sea of Galilee to go back to Nazareth. So he's leaving like his place where he's very successful. And he's heading back now toward um, Nazareth, which is like a, more or less like a 25 southwest, you know, of the, of the Galilee region. He's going southwest, about 25 miles. And, um, excuse me, um, basically what happens is he's, he's heading into this region. Now I got to visit Nazareth when I was there. And, it's really interesting. It's a whole lot of nothing, okay? It's like you get up there, and it's just this, like, little valley where they built a little village off the side of a hill. And um, we were in this pl one place just about 600 meters away from where the actual ancient village was, uh, like, archaeologically, like, unearthed. And there's these old wine presses dug out into the, into the ground, which is super cool because even the tour guides are like, man, one of these, it's not like these were, like, plentiful. They would have enough for the region, but everyone kind of shared them. So it'd be like, your turn, Bill, you know? Okay, your turn, Bob, you know? And then your turn, okay, Susie. And um, I don't know if Susie really, you know, harvested grapes or not, but, but Bob and Bill definitely did, okay? <laughs> and basically what happens is this guy was basically showing us this wine process. He's like, yeah, listen, like, this is like, this is dated. Like, this is like 2,000 years old. You can see it's got this, like, squared out place. Then it's got this little curve, like, chiseled through the ground where it goes into this, like, reservoir where it would take all of the, the juices and the, and the ferment, well, not the wine, then it would begin to ferment. They'd, they'd basically have it picked up from there and put into these wineskins and have it fermented. And they're like, this would be like a family occasion as they get to these places and blah, blah, blah. And it was really cool because they're basically alluding to the fact that it was very, it's 
very probable, uh, probable that Jesus was sitting around these very wine presses during harvesting season, hanging out and chatting and playing with his friends. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like I'm sitting in the very places, I'm seeing the same mountainsides and cliffs that Jesus would have grown up playing around. And that was just very confronting on many levels, not because the what is of, yeah, we know he was here. We don't know that he was right here, but I do know he saw these, these views. I do know that he probably sat on top of many of these mountaintops overlooking the valleys, getting ready and preparing himself for the things that happened. And for me, when you believe a spiritual, in the spiritual sense, all that we, we believe in, when you're confronted, when that spirituality confront, like is, collides with the physical world that you live in, it hits you in a way that's really special. And... Um, but in this place called Nazareth, Jesus basically grew up. Now, he grew up, he left, he starts his ministry, he goes and gets baptized, in the, like, gets baptized, Holy Spirit comes on him, he goes and gets tested in the wilderness for 40 days, 40 nights, comes back to his hometown with his disciples in hand now. And now, you gotta ask yourself, why would Jesus leave Capernaum? I mean, he's got, his belief tour has now begun. He's become pretty, you know, influential. He's become very sought after. People are coming to see him at the droves. He's made a name for himself at this point. And he goes, let's go back to where I started. And so he goes back to where he started with his disciples. And I can't help but think this is like some kind of training program where he's not going back to where he started because God's let's never forget where he came from. There was something he wanted to show his disciples. And it was very interesting what happens. He gets to his hometown. He walks into the synagogue. By this point, they kind of let him be the guest preacher for the weekend. So they hand him a scroll from the prophet Isaiah, and he gets up and he starts to read it where he says, you know, the year, favorable year of the Lord is upon, is upon us. They declare, you know, basically freedom to the captive, you know, the oppressed set free, the blind will see, the dead will raise. All this, like, amazing promises. He goes, I want you guys to know that, you know, since I've read this scripture, it is now being fulfilled in your hearing. Well, this set off a chain reaction in the crowd because they're like, <gasps> I'm like, we were amazed at you and your teaching. You were wise. You got some good stuff to say. We've been hearing about your reports of what's going on. It's pretty exciting. They're all excited because, man, right out of, you know, Nazareth, you know, like, woo, who knew anything good could come from Nazareth in the, in the, in the words of Philip himself or Nathaniel's story where he was, Philip was going to get him and basically he responded going, can anything, you're, you're talking about the Messiah, the one is here. He's like, yeah, you need to come see. And he goes, can anything good come from Nazareth? Now, what's interesting about this place, Nazareth, it's a couple things. Uh, it's uh, Nazar, and then it's, it's a word that means uh, like shoot or branch. It's equally uh, believed that these are old school like Judeans who are now resettling up in the northern part of Israel because they just kind of been hidden. So this is under the line of D David himself, okay? This is where Jesus is promised to come from the tribe of Judah. So this is really significant. And he gets up. And there's this group of Nazarites, or, or, you know, Nazarenes, sorry, who are basically known as being the offspring of David, okay? And they're resettling up in the north. And then there's a, a, a prophecy in Isaiah 11 that basically says, out of the shoot of Jesse, uh, out of the seed of Jesse, a shoot will come forth. It's basically the word, a shoot or branch will come forth is the word Nazar. And so they, many people believe that that was a fulfilled scripture out of Nazareth will come a shoot. In other words, I don't know if you knew, but olive trees have like these, big trunks, and they got these little shoots that come up, and those are new olive trees. And so they'll dig out the shoot, and they'll replant it, and it'll basically become an olive tree eventually. So there's this cool stuff that you kind of learn. So um, they're basically saying it's not going to be, it's going to be a shoot from this place, uh, from the seed of Jesse will come a shoot. So in other words, from the line of David will come somebody in a Nazar, like Nazareth, right? It's going to come from the line of Judah, this, this branch that will set up, and he will, he will be the Messiah. Well, out of this place, obviously, Jesus is born. He is, he's not born here. He's born in Bethlehem, but he's raised in Nazareth, right? And he basically finds himself growing up in this place. He comes back to his hometown, and he finds that he's offended. And they said, oh, man, they were amazed at first. And then they become offended at Jesus because, hey, they can't handle the fact that Jesus is, is saying who he says he is. And they said, is this not just the carpenter? So this word here actually means builder. It's not necessarily someone who works with wood necessarily. I learned that while I was there as well. It means basically someone who's a builder of any kind. It could be a carpenter. It could have been a stonemason. It could have been really much anybody who builds, right? So he's just a builder. He's a, he's a handyman. And it basically says, is this not just a carpenter? And then they said, is this man, which I think is equally ironic. Do you got to understand? Can I just give you some insight here? The whole town of Nazareth would have been two to 300 people max. And they're saying this man, like they didn't know him. 
<laughs> Everybody knows each other by first name basis. They know each other by the other names basis on this one. Whether they know what you did Friday night, they're gonna call you something weird, you know, because you got a name for yourself in that little town of 300 people. What do you have to do on a hillside with 300 people for 30 years? Okay, they know who this man is and they're calling him a builder, this refinery, and they said, is this not just Mary's son? And equally offensive because at that day and age, a Jew would never be known by the mother's line. They'd always be known by in association to the father. So in other words, they were giving, they were articulating the, oh yeah, we know this whole idea that there's some rumor about where this guy really came from. But let me tell you something. Is he not just one of us, in other words, is what they're saying. You know, Australians know this very idea as something called the tall poppy syndrome. It's when somebody tries to do something great out of the midst of somebody, a whole group of people who've been, you know, enjoying life, a status quo. And when someone says, you know, I'm gonna do a little bit different, everyone kind of just says, hey, you don't need to make us look bad, right? Let's just bring you back to our level and remind you who you are. And I don't know about you, but it's interesting to me that Jesus in his hometown, okay, this guy has already begun his ministry. He's already healing the blind. He's already healed a woman with an issue of blood. He's already done some significant ministry moments Life was thing that would have definitely gotten back to his people. But it says that they grew offended at him. The word offense is the word scandal on. It's like a scandal, right? It's a scandal on. It means trap. So they are unable to receive from Jesus because they are trapped within their offense of him. In other words, Nazareth became a trap. It was the place that did not support you. It was a place that did not appreciate you. It was the place that refused to see you in light of who God said you were and just, in, 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 in other words, just chose to take you at face value. Can I say it like this? It was the place that refuses to see that everything we do and, and become of ourselves, everything we make of ourselves is done by the grace of God. But what it says is, I don't care what the mantle is, all I can see is the man. So there may be a mantle, but I can't only see the man within the mantle. And so I refuse to receive from you because you will only receive from people on the level that you perceive that person. If I perceive IBK to be wise, everything he says is gonna be wise. And I think he's a pretty wise guy, so that's tr there's truth in that. Uh, love you, dude. But uh, the truth is, is that, you know, all of us have to learn this idea of the perception principle. It's a real thing. I don't know if you knew, but shoe less, uh, what, pay less shoes? They did this whole campaign, I don't know if you guys knew this, but they, they rented out this spot in some strip mall or a mall somewhere, I, forget, I think it was in LA, if I, if I stand corrected. And they basically decided to go, hey, let's take our $20, $30 shoes and let's market them like high-end designer shoes, the exact same shoes. They just, all they did is got hoity-toity staff dressed them up with their like, you know, their pompous piety and all that stuff, okay? And they got in there and they marketed everything with bedazzle and they put price tags that were no longer 300 or 30, they're now 300. 60 was now 600 and vice versa. Shoes that were selling for $1,000 and people came in going, oh, wow, who's the designer? And they had some like, like they played off the pay less shoe thing. It was like, it was Peleolius or whatever, like, you know, like, <laughs> Like, it was something fancy, you know? And they, all they did is just rebranded their fancy kind of like $30 shoes. And people, I kid you not, lined up, started getting all crazy excited about it. And instead of buying the shoes for $300, $400, $600, to the point where the cameraman would chase them back down once they walked in and said, we can't, no, we can't. Here's your money back. We just want you to know that these are glued together in like, you know, some country over here for 30 bucks. Like, these are not an expensive shoe. Why did you pay so much money for a shoe that clearly, and here's the idea, is that, well, we perceived it to be something rare. We perceived it not as common. We perceived it as special. And as a result, I received it and was able, was willing to exchange value, put value on it with my money. And so therefore, I was willing to go there. I wonder in life, how much the perception principle has either enabled or inhibited your life? Be it with people, how they perceive you, or maybe how you have even perceived others. Because in the case of Jesus in his hometown, we find that he is ultimately rejected. Because is this not just Jesus, the son of the carpenter, the son of Mary? Is he not just this man, one of us? And the reality is, I wonder if in our world that we understand that when it comes to calling, 
when it comes to mantle, when it comes to, to giftedness, and, and ultimately, can I say it like this? It's a grace. It is not something that we deserve. It's not something that we uh, go out and earn. It's something that God does through his goodness. It is something that he accomplishes. It doesn't mean that we don't have a partnership with him along the way, but I am trying to help you understand that our ability to perceive someone in a place of authority, our ability to perceive them is ultimately gonna be our ability to receive them. Think about it. So Jesus, it says, could not perform miracles in his own hometown. It didn't say he would not. It says he could not. And I wanna challenge somebody here today who is not experiencing the miracles in your life the way that you expected to see them. I wonder if in any way, shape, or form, it could stem back to a spirit of familiarity with the people and the places that God has positioned you. I wonder if in any way, it could be ultimately reduced down to the, your ability and how you see things. Because when it came to Jesus, how many of you guys recognize when it came to the people of Nazareth? When it came to Jesus, what you see is what you get. Literally. They saw him as just a man, a carpenter, and Mary's son. He's just he's not just one of us. I know there's some like there's some you know argument, there's some there's some debate about whether who, who his real father was and who Mary really is in this in terms of all this stuff. We've kind of not known. No angel came to us and told us after all that this is a special one. Just came to her, and so it's her word, and she comes and gets pregnant. And what 14-year-old know you know goes, it was God. This is a Maury episode. This is Jerry Springer all over again. This is where you go, oh, let's take a pregnancy test, somebody because no one believed it. And yet here is Jesus who is now coming into the fullness of his ministry and they are not recognizing him. They are not, they're not realizing what is before them. This is a man who could heal that, that person, the demonic activity in their life and set them free once and for all. This is a guy who could see that blind, those blind eyes open up again. This is a guy who could take the limp and see you running your marathons again. This is the guy who could heal your marriage, who could heal the depth of pain that you've been carrying emotionally. He's right before you. This is the moment, and if you could just see him for who God says he was, and actually honor, because I believe that honor really roots itself in regarding no man according to the flesh, the Bible says, but seeing all people according to the new creation in Christ Jesus. It's not seeing them in their humanity and therefore holding people hostage to a position of their humanity. How easy it is to dig for dirt and find dirt. But you don't dig through the dirt to find more dirt, you dig through the dirt to find some gold. And if we have the tenacity in this house to see the people in our world in that kind of way, just so we know that God has given each of us a grace, God has given each of us a calling, God has given each of us, regardless of the position that we carry, he's given us something that God wants to fulfill. I wonder if you have the ability to perceive that in your spouse. Or, you know, what used to amaze you, what used to be so mysterious. He just, he doesn't talk a lot, and so I'm always just, he's so mysterious, I'm so attracted to that 11 years in, you're like, he doesn't talk at all. He doesn't do anything. And as a matter of fact, I'm sick of it. Why don't you just tell me what you want? Why do you always act like, you know, and, and you start going, see, the thing that you were once amazed and mysterious, it was all so amazing. Stop being so amazing. Because I, I think that proximity creates problems at times. Because it creates common, common, what is, Common becomes so familiar, and what is familiar is an inner wonder that familia, the word family, familia is just one letter off from familiar. I think that we can grow familiar with those that are closest to us. And in this case, it says that Jesus was rejected, ultimately rejected. He, was, he, he goes on to say, listen, you're, you're offended at me because I say I'm the Messiah. That was a clear, distinct I'm here to fulfill the jubilee of the Lord. I'm here to show you the favor of God. I'm gonna do all this stuff. And today, and you're hearing is fulfilled. I'm basically, I am, hey guys, coming out, here I am. And everyone's like, yeah, I was amazed. You had some good teaching, but who do you think you are? And he goes, I can see. And look at what he says next. In the, in the scriptures in Luke chapter four, he literally pivots from that very offense and says, uh, a prophet's never, never honored in his hometown. Why do you think he said that? He was reading the audience. He saw it for what it was. He read where they were going in their heads. He goes, yeah, I get it. When you rise up from among you, you're not gonna be seen for what you are in God. And so, hey, it's one of those things, you know? And he goes, you guys want me to perform a miracle, don't you? But he goes, but then that wouldn't require your faith in me. And so, let me tell you what God deems is a big deal. And then he starts giving two examples right after that. Really interesting. He says, I'll give you an example about this guy who is a Gentile, Naaman. He goes and drops himself in the, dead, er, in the sea seven times because the prophet told him to go do that. And if he wanted to be healed of his leprosy, that's what he had to do. And he thought it was stupid, but he did it. And guess what? He was healed. But guess what, guys? This guy isn't a Jew. This guy's a Gentile. And he received the inheritance of a Jew by faith. 
And then what happens? And then he gives another example. He goes, you know, the Shunammite woman with Elisha, you know, he told her to do this thing with the oil, da 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 da. And she like gave the gave him bread to eat, and she didn't die. And now the oil went around, and she survived. And this big miracle. And guess what? She did it by faith as well. And guess who she was? She was a Gentile. She wasn't a Jew. And so what offended them? It says they were so angry at Jesus' words, they seized him and sought to throw him off a cliff. Now, we went to a mountainside called Mount Precipice, and Cole and I both laughed. The, the village is, like, way down in this valley, and they're like, yeah, they would have had to, like, walk for, like, three hours. By that time, it's like, it's like a musket. By the time you fill a musket, they're like, I'm going to kill you, bro. One second. You get the musket packed, and you're like, you know what? You're not a bad guy. I said, took too long. You know what I mean? I, I've cooled off. And by that point, you've equally escaped, you know, because, you know, muskets were way better. We should go back to the land of muskets where we had time to think before we shoot, you know, but Mount Precipice is like, I kid you not, a couple hours walk. It felt like it would have taken a while. And so if they had to seize him and brought him up, and like now it was on the side of a cliff. All that the, 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 the Jewish law basically suggested that it had to be the height of two men. It could have been any cliff along that side. And they want to throw him off because they're so mad because they're like, how dare you start saying that God is coming for the Gentiles? Why would that be offensive? Because at the time, they're under Roman occupation. All these Gentiles have come in and taken over, and they're oppressing, they're raping their women, sorry, and uh, they're doing some nasty, gnarly stuff. They're killing people, they're taking people, they're taxing them highly and just robbing their households, and they're coming in and saying either, you know, get into alignment or, you know, hey, you're going to have some... Some, some hard days, and it's been one of the worst times in Jewish history was when they were going through, the, they, they, they talk about how this was a very oppressive time. And as you know, Jewish history has all kinds of oppression all over it. And in this time, they were so offended at the words of Jesus saying, wait, so you're saying that God wants to love and come to those people who are occupying us as much as he wants to come to us, and they just couldn't handle it, that God's grace and his love would be so scandalous, so accessible, so, so equal, in its ability, and so they seize him and try to throw him off, and they reject him. So it says that Jesus slips out of the crowd, and he doesn't return again. Can I say something to you about this? He slips out of the crowd, and then he leaves the city to never come back to Nazareth again. And I got, like, so impacted by that. I was sitting in a mock synagogue as this guy kind of talked about some of this, and I was sitting there going, wow, to never, like your hometown. I did a hometown visit. And I'm sitting there going, wow, okay, cool. And I'm realizing in the hometown visit that Jesus' people, he, that he, it didn't say that he would not heal, guys. It wasn't like the hand of God was held back. It says he could not because faith is required for the hand of, so I wonder why there are miracles in some churches and not so much in others. I wonder why in some places you see miracles breaking out and why others, have you ever asked those questions? Because I have. I'm like, what is, what's, what's the difference? And I can't help but think that it comes down to how you see God and the people that God has appointed. How you see it. Because when it comes to Jesus, what you see is what you get. In this case, the level they perceived him was the level they received him. And ultimately, I wonder if our ability to believe God, I, you know, I think it's funny. Can I just say something really scandalous and in no way dishonoring to where we've come from? No way. But we've come from a very successful church across the planet, and people came in the droves. And they're just like, oh, let's come and be part of this church. Hillsong Church is amazing. Which, by the way, it is. I do not want to be miscalculated, misinterpreted here, or anything of the sorts. But I do, there was some crazy lessons learned along the way, if I could be transparent with you. As a leader over the whole thing, it was incredible. People come in, oh yeah, we're going to join you. I've been in the city for like eight years already. Where have you been? Oh, well, you know, that's, that's great. No, no judgment. Come on, we'd love to have you. So they join us. They come join the mix. And then you get into this other spin where, so now you're going to exit you're going to take the next exit ramp and you're going to kind of off ramp and then you're going to go into a new direction because that's what you believe God is saying. And what happens is you've got people who then who go, ah, oh. so what's the difference? I want to say something because there was no, there was no, there is anointing that's real. Um, there's alignment that's real. But in the physical sense right here, there is like zero deposit. Some people go, oh man, you must have received so much money. We got no money. Zero, not a dollar. Everything was 
literally a response of the people right here on the ground, which I believe in. That's not something I say in judgment or like, you gotta understand this, that's great, I, I believe in that. And the reality is though, this is the, the lesson that was incredible about the perception principle, is that when we're Hillsong, there's faith in the environment. People are like, let's go, let's go, let's go. And I'm like, amazing, because what they're doing is now they're perceiving that God can do something. Yeah. And yet it's the same worship leader that's always been there. And the same preacher that's always graced the platform. It's the same connect group leaders. It's the same treasurer. It's the same board. It's the same, it's the same venue. It's the same people. And all of a sudden people go, God's gonna do a miracle. You need to come check out my church. And you know what? Nothing happened because nothing changed. All of a sudden we started seeing this surge and I was like, wow, look what happens when there's just faith in the room. And then so we transitioned. The first thing I said to my leadership team was this thought. I said, so I wanna ask you something. What changed in the transition? What changed? Because we're still in great relationship. We still have all the same ability to go in and out. I just went to Israel with our church. So it's good. And I said, what changed other than a 12-inch logo on the top of a, of a sliding banner in the foyer? Because we had the same logo just minus the word. It was pretty much a carbon copy. So we can all just say that clearly, okay? And I was like, what changed? And, and I said, I'll tell you what changed. We saw a surge of about 400 people in church. What happened was people's perceptions. How people see it. And in certain environments, you could not perform a miracle. It wasn't that God would not. It was that we could not because faith is, the, is required to see the hand of God, to believe that who God has chosen, who God has put in place, the leader that is leading us in worship, that they have what it takes to truly open up the world, the breakthrough, and, and to, when they say, come on, let's raise our hands, that you truly engage with them and go with them, not going, well, don't tell me what to do. My personality is not to raise my hands. Don't tell me to raise my hands. You know, like, I don't, it's like, it's so weird. It's like a weird rebellious spirit to me. I go like, what is that? I'm like, all they're trying to do is facilitate what the Holy Spirit's trying to do in, in the environment. And you're going, no, I'm not going to do that. I was like, okay. I'm like, all right. But in the hockey game, you score and you're like, ah, you, you spill your beer in the guy in front of you. I mean, what's wrong with you? <laughs> Come on, guys. See, some of you do it. But, you know, I just came here to say the perception principle is such a powerful thing because all that changed was a 12-inch logo and the same people are still in the cockpit, the same leadership team. I said, so why should anything be any different? All we should be doing now is believing that what God has said over this house from day one is truly what God's gonna do through us and in us and that he who began a good work will be faithful to complete that thing. And as we, if we just simply put our faith and don't associate it with what is seen or what is visible, but it's actually put our faith in who God said this house is, then we can truly begin to see a move of God take place. And by the way, I'm not saying or articulating a thought that, that a move of God isn't already happening. I want you to know though, I'm just trying to just go whoop and just set your sight in the right direction. All I'm trying to say, I'm not diminishing what God has done. Actually, I believe that we are fully in revival days. I think that what is happening here in Ottawa is incredible. However, I'm simply trying to point your thought and actually align it with God's thought that says, I don't need this, I don't need that. I don't need to look to my right or my left. I can simply look to God and know that he is far able to do that which he promised to do. And so Jesus is rejected. He doesn't return back. And I, I, I got a couple thoughts on this real quick. And I was like, man, how did he not get bitter? I mean, he was so, that, well, that would have hurt. I mean, the people that you thought would have like, yo, like we've spent, why don't you believe in me, man? And all of a sudden he leaves with his disciples. And I can't, I'm like, why did you bring them back there? You were already successful. You didn't need to go back there just to be rejected again. And I can't help but think that the resurrection road is always paved with rejection. That he needed to teach his disciples before he released them and commissioned them into, into ministry that they need to see, hey, you're gonna be, your life is gonna be built on rejection. And you say, well, what do you mean? And I think that Jesus was trying to show them a simple scripture that I think that Peter actually is the one who penned this. And I can't help but think that maybe Peter even learned it in this moment at Jesus' hometown visit when he says, as you come to him, the living stone rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also like, uh, like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in the scripture it says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Wow. 
the stone in which the, the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. I wonder if in your life, your inability to perceive yourself and vice versa, people's inability to see the king inside the kid, that rejection of you, I wonder how you've responded to that rejection in your life. Did it, did it grow you bitter or did it grow you better? How have you responded to someone's no? How have you responded to someone's criticism? How have you responded to the rejection where they refuse to put their faith in you and to believe in you in the capacity that you believe the potential that God has put across your life is or remains? You get what I'm trying to say. My point is, is that I think that all of us can, can appreciate the journey that Jesus did, but how he handled it. See, God knew that it was the cornerstone in which the, the, the stone in which the builder rejected, he built something significant from. And I can't help but wonder in your life, if there's a rejection in your life that God had to give you because he wanted to use it to build your future on it. I've learned a couple things about rejection. Can I tell you what those are? I'll tell you one now. Your response to rejection is either going to build you or bury you. It's either going to cause growth in your life or grief in your life. And you know these people because they, they're sour. The, the grief ones, they're soured. They're bitter. They're always defending themselves. They're like, well, yeah, yeah, and they just, they become like jaded. And I, I was saying the jaded ultimately will one day become hated because no one likes to be around like a sour-faced person long enough. They're just like, man, just, can we get this room a little different here? You're wrecking my vibe. You know what I'm saying? Here's a couple ways you're going to respond to re rejection. You're either going to retaliate toward the rejection in your life. I remember in my formative years when I was working with some leaders in some, it was just like youth days, right? In my high school days, I remember I was like a little bit of a social outcast. I don't know if ever anybody's ever been there where you didn't feel, you felt like a total misfit. You didn't fit in really anywhere. It was this group. I didn't belong to that group. I didn't belong to the jocks. I didn't belong to the, you know, the, this group, that group. And, and so you kind of feel like you kind of float. And I don't know if you've ever been there, but when you don't have that group, you can kind of feel like you're like, oh, who am I? And ultimately what happened was I when I was rejected, and I remember one of the sayings that I, that I was asked, I've been asked two questions by two prominent leaders in my life. And two times this question was asked of me. It was in a moment of very much anger, in a moment of like, wow, how dare you? And I, you gotta understand the backstory. It's all good. It wasn't like I did anything wrong, actually. But there was just like this weird, I felt like it was an assignment against the calling of my life that really like God used. And I, and I never understood back then what I understood now, just for the record. I never understood that back then what God was doing. because And all I saw was like, whoa, what the heck? I thought you were like the perfect, picture-perfect person of the planet. You're a pastor. You, you shouldn't talk to somebody like that. And they looked at me with veins in their head, and they said, who do you think you are? And I was just like, what? I, I admit that I was a zealot. But I didn't think I was like rebellious or anything like that. I was just doing what I felt God was doing, and I didn't understand that that could be offensive at times. So I just went with it. And this leader goes, who do you think you are? Then fast forward a few years later, another leader, who do you think you are? I'm thinking, man, I need to go look in the mirror. Because I'm like, what's wrong with me? Is there something about me? And I couldn't help but think that over time, I remember how that rejection, it like totally did something in my heart. And I started to go, and this is what I've learned about rejection through these experiences. One, you can either retaliate. The first time I got, who do you think you are? I remember I, I put, I literally, I went into retaliation mode. I'm gonna show you who I think I am. And so I went into this, this whole plot to go and prove my calling, to prove myself to the people who, who did not believe me. I said, I'll show you. And so it sent me into retaliation. The rejection led to retaliation where I basically was like working overtime, hustling, burning the candle at both ends to make something of myself where they would have to acknowledge that this man is being powerfully used by God. Retaliation, that's one way you can do it. I don't think it's a good response though. I think it actually only reveals your own insecurity about who you think you are. And that it's just acting in a spirit of pride almost to try to prove something. Then there's the other side where you retreat. You don't retaliate. If you've ever been in this situation, I remember the second time I, I didn't pick up my instrument for a better part of two years because a leader said, who do you think you are? And I remember it crushed me so deeply that I didn't seek to retaliate, I sought to retreat. I sought to hide because they didn't see or appreciate the gift that I clearly was. <laughs> they didn't seek to support me in the endeavor. They didn't seek to support you in that call. They didn't seek to get behind you and fund you. 
And so you just hid yourself. I'm reminded of so many people who did, David, Adulam, Bardulam, whatever you call it. I don't know how to say the word, okay, but you get the point. He hid in a cave. I wonder if you're hiding in a cave right now because somebody didn't see you. Somebody didn't acknowledge you. And so you hide because you're like, I'm never gonna try again because I never wanna experience the pain of that rejection again. But I have a question for you because you can either experience the pain of rejection or you're gonna live your life and experience the pain of regret. I'm gonna ask you a question. Which one do you think is gonna hurt more in the end? What such and such a person said because such and such a person didn't acknowledge. Do you know that Walt Disney was, you know, fired because he lacked imagination from a job? Seriously, Walt Disney. Do you know Oprah was fired from a job once because she, they thought she, she showed too much emotion? The woman whose empathy has literally changed the world through the screens and television screens. I mean, she's kind of known for that. That was her greatest strength. And learning how to put that strength to work was probably the test, wasn't it? But is it any wonder that some of these people have been rejected over and over again? Is it any wonder that Jesus was rejected as the son of God from the very thing he was? And did he retaliate? I'm gonna show you. I don't see that spirit. I don't see it in David. Did he retreat? Actually, in David, I do see a level of retreat sometimes. You do see some of his humanity coming out. So what are we to do? Are we to retreat because they don't recognize me? Are we to retreat because they don't see me? Or what are we or to retreat and hide because they, they can't seem to get their act together and recognize the mantle inside of the man or vice versa, the woman? I think the best way to handle rejection is not to retaliate or retreat, but to allow the Holy Spirit to redeem it, to redeem your rejection, to learn how to, to know who you are. I always pray for my kids. I pray that you'd know who you are and that you'd know whose you are. Because if you know who you are and whose you are, I'm confident that you'll be able to be who you are. Because one of the greatest tests that's gonna get you is to make you like David, go through life thinking you have to win battles by wearing somebody else's armor. When he gets to the testing point where God's gonna put him before Goliath, one of the biggest tests of his life to this point, he's defeated a lion, he's defeated a bear, but now he's before the king, King Saul of Israel. And King Saul's like, listen, man, you're gonna go feet, beat this giant. You gotta fight him like the rest of us fight him. And so he starts throwing on all this garb on him and he puts his helmet and his breastplate and his, his sword. And basically it says in one of the versions I have that David could not move and uh, because of the restrictions of the weight. He felt restricted. I was like, man, that'll preach. Because I think that sometimes we allow the expectations of others. Sometimes we allow someone to throw stuff on us and the armor and the way that we think we ought to fight our battles and the way we ought to approach this fight by wearing all the way that they do it and how they say it and how they clothe themselves and cloak themselves and how they, and I think that ultimately what we've got to reconcile within ourselves is the fact that, hey guys, I don't have to be anything other than myself. I just gotta be who God called me. I love this saying, it's a little cheesy, but it really rings true in this moment. God's supernatural is just letting God's super be added to your natural. It's not trying to be weird or wonky or wishy-washy or trying to do something out of the, it's just letting yourself be yourself. I love it saying like this, just do you, boo. I like that. Because when David ultimately got to the battle lines, he, people started throwing on, this is how you fight this, this is how you do this. And I think ultimately what it came down to is David knowing who he was and what he was skilled in. He had a sling that he'd been practicing in private with for a long time, and he was getting good at it. He goes, you know what, I don't need all this stuff. I'm just gonna go with my sling. This guy's gonna come at me with sword and armor and all this stuff. That's great. But I'm coming to him in the name of the Lord God of, my, uh, of the arm, angel armies of Israel. And, uh, and so, hey, he can defy me all he wants, but he's not defying me, he's defying God. And so he comes at him with a sling and he comes at him with much, much less fighting materials than he, he was suggested to come with and yet he finds himself up on top. I think that what I'm trying to say is that sometimes you just gotta be yourself and know how to completely understand yourself. So this is what I've learned about rejection. Don't let it, don't let it retaliate, don't let it produce retreat, but allow it to redeem it. And how does it redeem it? By knowing who you are. Because rejection, I, I, can I just say three things I've learned about rejection? It reveals. It will reveal your true motive. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but when rejection happens, it'll cause you to go back to the drawing board and say, wait, why am I really doing this? Come on, think back to the last time you've been really rejected by something where it burned you a little bit. And you think, oh, and it's gonna reveal to you. It has a revealing quality about it. It reveals to you why you're doing what you're doing. You go, should I keep going forward or should I just stop and retreat now and just give up and throw in the towel? What it's gonna do is gonna reveal 
how badly you really want that thing. How badly and how convicted you really are about the calling across your life. Or whether it is truly the thing you got. Because if it's truly what God has said, then I, I would just encourage you, what are you doing throwing in the towel? What are you doing sitting on the sidelines? What are you doing in a cave right now? Get up out of there and let's give God some glory and not retaliate or retreat. Let's allow God to redeem it. And so what is it revealing in you? Well, that's a good thing. Don't be scared of what it's revealing into you. I think that faith is looking the, fa the facts right in the face and putting faith over it and speaking faith over it and saying, you know what, I can look at the facts. And then some people think that faith is denying the facts, like denying what was really happening. Like I'm sick, but no, I'm not, I'm healed in Christ. He says, no, you're sick and it's okay to admit that. Faith is not a denial of the facts. It's speaking to that which isn't as though it is, but it's not seeing that which is as though it isn't. Come on, somebody. So you're sick, you can say you're sick, but declare God's healing over you. That's another thing altogether, but stop acting like it's not there. You look like a weirdo that's living in like la-la land. I'm still declaring and standing on God's word and God's promise and I'm not diminishing it in any way, shape or form. And my point is, is that I wonder in your life if you need to start doing that and allowing it to reveal in you what it is that you really want. Allow it to reveal the real, because sometimes it reveals, you know, I didn't really want that anyways. I don't know why I was pursuing it. And then all of a sudden you realize the second quality of rejection, that it refines you. Rejections refine you. What they do is they allow you to discover at times some interesting qualities. You know, because I don't know if you ever, I, I've said this saying before, to be rejected and to be corrected are two different things. And sometimes I think that to be corrected is to be rejected. It's like we have no ability to separate our performance from our person. And so sometimes, you know, as a leader, as a pastor, I've often sat down with my team and I've had very invasive conversations with them about problems that result, show themselves in a pattern across their life or whatever. And, I, and I, I start speaking to it and they can feel very uncomfortable. And I've had some people leave the church as a result of some of those corrective conversations. And what's sad is that these people didn't realize that though it was a corrective conversation, it wasn't a rejection conversation. We were talking about performance and not person. And knowing the difference allows that rejection now to refine you and make you better and not bitter. You learn from it and you allow it to build you in a way that if you just kept getting a pat in the back, I know I always say sometimes a, a, a kick in the butt is better than a kiss on the cheek. What am I talking about? Well, Jesus was betrayed with a kiss on the cheek. Sometimes you like the kisses on the cheek, but sometimes it's the most betraying thing you can get. Sometimes a good, good old swift kick in the butt is what you need. And it's what serves the purpose of God greater in your life than the kiss on the cheek. Either way, wrapping the thought up, the last thing I've learned about rejection is that it can redirect you. I don't know about you, but sometimes I'm grateful that God doesn't give me what I've prayed for. And sometimes I've been given what I've prayed for only to realize that when I got there, it wasn't what I wanted. And I was like, oh, what? And it was like, God had to lead you in that door because ultimately the thing I've settled is that God sees the beginning from the end. That God is the one who ordains our lives. And that God is the one who can see where he wants to take us. But sometimes when we see rejection, we can see it as like as that we experience the pain of a closed door not realizing it's just God rerouting. It's not rejection, it's rerouting. Do you not know what I'm saying? Like if you ever come to a place where you thought this is gonna be your, and all of a sudden rerouting, 50 yards, turn left, you're like, no! Like, uh, happens to be a lot. Like when I landed in Toronto this week and we landed there, I'm not sure if this is gonna tie in or not, but I'm gonna try to. Like my, my kids were at the airport in Ottawa about to surprise me that when I was getting home and then I got held up in a snowstorm and ended up sitting on the tarmac for three hours. And it was like rerouting, we're not gonna let you go. I guess that's more of a waiting story, isn't it? But anyways, I tried. Um, it was a real horrible experience to be honest. I was, I was getting anxious at the end. I was like, I'm ready to blow. <laughs> I'm like, this is not cool, people. Let me off this thing, I'm claustrophobic. Uh, redirection, see, I don't know about you, but sometimes I'm grateful that God doesn't give me what I want because he, ultimately God knows that he has something better for me. Come on, you look, if you've got any life behind you, you know this for yourself. That sometimes that, that person you want to be with, you're like, man, is it ever glad I wasn't with them because what I've got now 
oh man, who I'm with now or, uh, or the place I'm positioned now or the job that I've, I've been given. How many of you guys know it's, it's retrospect sometimes can give you such an appreciation that, wow, I can see the hand of God through that whole thing. And what I experienced as a rejection there wasn't a rejection, it was a rerouting to bring me into the greater thing that God had for me all along. Because God knew that you weren't supposed to be partners with that person. God knew that you weren't supposed to join forces in that capacity as a business. And so he did. He closed the door. And sometimes when God sets a roadblock up and forces you away from the direction you thought you were supposed to travel in, you realize it was ultimately God working to see it's the blessing of rejection. And here's the thing I came to tell somebody. You can continue to see it the way you're seeing it. I get it. But what I love about faith is it doesn't allow me to go down that path. It, it gives me naming rights of my seasons. You know that Adam and Eve, when they were created, they were giving naming rights. They said, name it what you want. Call it what you want. And I call it, I call the message, call it what you want a few months ago. But I really think it, it's, it's, it's applicable here is that you can see rejection and you can call it what you want. It is what it is, but it's not what it seems. You get to call it what you want. And if you allow a faith filter to interpret this season of your life, this season where people don't appreciate, where they're rejecting you, where they haven't supported you, where they haven't done that thing that you were desiring them to do, can I just say, stay in faith and don't grow bitter, don't retaliate, don't retreat, but allow God to reveal to you and to refine you and to redirect you so that ultimately you come into the space and the place that you're always destined to be. And as I look at Christ, I can't help but be so encouraged that he stayed the line and he went out and continued to minister to people and just allowed his success to tell the story. Allow his death to tell the story and his resurrection to ultimately tell the story where he empowered people to stop seeing rejection as a thing. God will use the very stone in which the building rejected to go and build the church upon. God will use that very rejection in your life if you respond to it right to build you and not bury you, to grow you and not grieve you. I believe that God has sent a rejection in somebody's life here today, not to harm you, but to ultimately help you. Maybe it's causing the approval of men to die in your life, where you stop looking to them for the approval that you desperately need. Because how could Jesus not live after the approval of men? Because he understood he was already accepted by God. He didn't need it. And sometimes God's got to set up the system in such a way where everything around you is going to turn where you, if you go to the crowd, sometimes the crowd's fickle. Crucify him. The crowd said, how quickly they turn. And I pray that you'd set your foundation of faith on Christ, not the crowd. Here today in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Come on, every head bowed, every eye closed across this place. You know, this morning, my prayer for you is that you'd resolve within yourself to embrace rejection in a different capacity than you have coming in. That you'd learn to resolve within yourself to say, God, what is it you're saying over this situation? I pray that it would reveal to you what Christ is up to, his activity and his identity through this whole season. I pray that it would refine you and cause you to grow better and not bitter. That it would cause you to respond in such a way that you wouldn't seek in an insecure position out of pride to position yourself in an incorrect way, but to learn how to hold and maintain yourself with dignity, knowing that you are who God says you are, knowing who you are and whose you are. And I pray that you allow the rejection to redirect you into the fullness of what God has for you, to be patient and know that God is working all things together for the good of those who love him, for those who are the called according to his purpose. If there's one thing I, I, I rest assured today is that God's purposes will remain. You cannot thwart what it is that he has started. No man can shut a door that God has opened or shut. God is God and he will complete that good thing in you until the day it is completed. So God, give, we give you glory. We hope this message blessed and encouraged you. To find out more about our church, visit mychurchcanada.com.